All right. Welcome, everyone, to uh, this edition of Equipping Hour. Uh, part of the irony of, of teaching a class on the duties of parents at this time is that most of the parents in our church are not here because they have children uh, they need to get home who are hungry or sleepy, uh, like mine. My family is not even here. Uh, but they can catch, it, catch up and, and listen online, Lord willing. Uh, let's pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll dive in. God, thank you so much for your word, just life in the body under the authority of our head, who is Christ, is a life that we don't deserve to have commandments, words received from you that are wholly trustworthy, entirely good and true uh, in every respect. Uh, You just deserve praise uh, for such a reality. And now as we turn our attention to see what your word says about uh, parenting, I pray that it would do exactly what you intend your instructions to parents uh, is supposed to do, and that is to glorify you, that we would be turned to worship you because of what you have said to us in your word about parenting. And we trust that you will make that the case in this time now. In Christ's name, amen. All right. The duties of parents. Uh, This month, January, this... uh, book really can't even be called a, a book. It's a, it's a pamphlet. Uh, 34 pages long is one of our books of the month. The other is uh, Thoughts to Young Men, which is also, I think, helpful to parents. <clears throat> My kids will probably reading, be reading Thoughts to Young Men uh, every year from the time that they're able to handle that kind of reading uh, until they leave my home. At least that's the, what I anticipate. We'll see what happens when we get there. But Uh, Both these books by J.C. Ryle are just excellent resources to uh, help us think about children and parenting and the responsibility of both. And so what this class will aim to do is just take uh, 17, or not all 17 principles, J.C. Ryle outlined the duty of parents in this booklet in 17 different principles, and we'll cover four today and then a few more next week, things that I hope will serve the, really every member of our body, uh, in particular those who still have children under their care. Uh, If you have already raised children and and you're here, uh, this class is useful for you. If you haven't raised children, you're not even married perhaps, you're single, Uh, this class will still be useful for you. And this has uh, just broad, broad application. Uh, For those of you who have grandchildren, uh, your parenting can continue as you seek to help your children who are raising kids. Or while you have the kids, your grandkids in your care, you will be served by reviewing what we're going to talk about in these principles. And if you don't have children or desire them, then obviously this has application for you as well, uh, because one day hopefully you will have children. But even if 
you're single now or for a significant time to come, you still have a role in the body to play. And so as you interact with friends in, in the body who do have children, uh, you can be helpful to them in serving them by reminding them of what they're called to in, in the appropriate ways, uh, providing accountability by uh, when you have their children in your care, either in Next Generation Ministries or in small group. Um, you can know how you should speak to children and what's expected so that everybody's on the same page. And so this should really serve us all as we, as we turn our attention to these things. Uh, the principles that Ryle outlines in his book, how many, just by show of hands, how many of you have already read this book or are reading it now? Okay. Um, if you haven't read this book, you should. It's very helpful. Um, I'll just read through the 17 principles that he gives in the book uh, for parents. Here's what he says. If you would train your children rightly, you should do these 17 things. One, train them in the way they should go and not in the way they would go. Principle two, train up your child with all tenderness, affection, and patience. Three, train your child with an abiding persuasion in your, on your mind that much depends upon you. Four, train with this thought continually before your eyes that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. Train your child, principle five, to a knowledge of the Bible. Six, train them to a habit of prayer. Seven, train them to habits of diligence and regularity about public means of grace. Principle eight, train them to a habit of faith. Principle nine, train them to a habit of obedience. Ten, train them to a habit of always speaking the truth. Train them to a habit of always redeeming the time. Eleven, twelve, train them to a constant fear of overindulgence. Thirteen, train them remembering continually how God trains his children. Principle 14, train them remembering continually the influence of your own example. 15, train them remembering continually the power of sin. And then 16 and 17, train them remembering continually the promises of Scripture and train them them with continual prayer for a blessing on all you do. Now, those are just the general principles for parents, doesn't include a ton of detail. And so similarly, in, in the, over the next two weeks, we'll just be taking a high-level view of parenting. Uh, and this will have particular application for different families in different homes. Uh, and I'll leave much of that to you to discern. Uh, if you have any need of discerning particular application of any of these principles, The Demarists and the Pagels uh, are available. So there you go. I didn't give you guys a heads up, but uh, I'm sure they would love to to help you. Um, First, before we jump into these uh, few principles that we'll look at today, just want to talk about the biblical goal of parenting. The biblical goal of parenting. Uh, Go to Ecclesiastes 
chapter 12, verse 13, because the goal of parenting is really the goal of everything else. It shares its purpose with everything else under the sun. Solomon summarizes life, uh, the duty of all men under the sun in this way. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The duty of parents is the duty of of everyone, and it is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's, That's the summation of our obligation before God. And I love that word duty. Uh, duty is not a, a, a word that we hear probably as much in our day, but it's appropriate because it's a, a moral imperative. It's not um, situational. This is not uh, dependent on your particular uh, makeup or anything like that. It's an obligation. The duty of man is in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Uh, Another way of saying that is worship or glorify God. (laughs) To glorify God in everything that we do, to consider him in all of our ways and make his honor our aim is the purpose of parents specifically, and that's why God created everything else that exists. The chairs that we sit on, the carpet we're walking on, this building, Uh, Your spouse, your children, your friends, friendships, your job, the food we eat, the donuts you're consuming, all of that is so that you can return glory and honor to God. See, Israel, you just had that donut. That's why that donut existed. So parenting is no no different. The goal of parenting can't be outcome-driven, right? The goal of parenting cannot be outcome-driven. If I'm a good parent, then my child must make these grades. If I'm a good parent, my child must behave this way in public. If I'm a good parent, then uh, my child must choose this career path or make these types of uh, career decisions. Or even something as noble as my child must be a Christian and grow up and zealously serve the Lord well. That can't be the ultimate goal of parenting. Why? If any of those outcomes is the goal of parenting, then that means the outcome is the determination for what kind of parent you were. And that clearly can't be the case. Case in point, God has rebellious children. If parenting was outcome-driven, if the goal of parenting was outcome-driven, then we would have to say that based on the evidence from much of the Old Testament, God is a terrible parent. I speak in a human way. That's not the case. Uh, Israel is rebellious. That doesn't impugn God's parenting. Um, And similarly, children who grow up to be wayward or make poor decisions is not the sole indicator of what what kind of parent you were. It's not even the primary indicator of what kind of parent you are. Um, You can be a faithful parent and have rebellious children. 
certainly that when, when children are younger and the parents have uh, more control over children, then uh, the, the biblical evidence seems to be that your parenting is uh, more revealed in how your children act at a younger age than, than as they grow up and start making their own decisions. Um, so the goal of parenting is, is the glorification of God. Um, and that is specifically aimed at for parents through faithfulness to fear and obey God in specific ways. The glory of God is the big picture goal. Parents aim at that through faithfulness to what God has required from parents. Take everything the Bible says about children, everything the Bible says about parents, and when those two things meet, what should happen? Uh, faithfulness to that is, is how parents can glorify God. And so when we think of the glory of God, again, that we, we, we've said this before, we talk about this, uh, and you've heard this certainly if you've been at Grace Bible for any length of time. Uh, the glory of God is his own intrinsic weightiness. The word means weight. What is weighty, great, grand about God? You take his, his love, infinitely loving. God in his very nature is love. That is one component of God that is weighty as we, as we see it. Uh, take his presence. God is present everywhere. Hate, that is weighty, a re- weighty reality about God. His wrath is weighty. His patience is weighty. His grace and mercy are weighty realities, infinitely so. What it means then to glorify God is not to add some degree of weight or glory or greatness that God doesn't already possess, because that's impossible. We could never add any degree of greatness that God doesn't already possess in himself And so glorifying God, to bring God glory, merely means to reveal the greatness that is already there. So a parent who is glorifying God is parenting in such a way that reveals the greatness that already exists in God. It is to pull back the curtain, so to speak, for your spouse or your children or other people in the body or complete strangers on the the weightiness, the greatness that exists in God. Our parenting should be something like a finger pointing people to the greatness of God when they see us parent. That's the goal of parenting. And Jesus uh, says that very thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People should be in awe of God when they see how parents parent. One pastor said it this way, if we would educate children, that is train children, we must do all that we do for them from right motives. Almost the only motive that the scriptures allow to be right in a regard, is a regard for the glory of God and a disinterested, i.e. free from any self-interest to ourselves, a disinterested desire to promote God's glory. In all our cares, labors, and sufferings for them, 
a regard to the divine glory must be the main spring that moves us. So as we talk about our duty, it is with the express purpose of glorifying God. And the question then is, what must I do in parenting so that God is ascribed the glory that he deserves? How can I train my children so that God's greatness is put on display? And that's what we'll be talking about in a, a few principles. So principle one that, that Ryle mentions in his book is train our children in the way they should go and not in the way they would. He says this, remember children are born with a decided bias towards evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. They're certain to choose wrong. A few passages that helpfully illustrate this, Psalm 51.5, I think you have that on your outline. David, as he is repenting of his own sin with Bathsheba, is not just reminded of the sin nature he possesses in the moment, but the, the weight of his guilt rightly weighs on him so heavily that he is reminded something that it was true of him at birth, even at conception. He says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He has been a sinner since that point. The same is true of all children. David not only indicted himself this way, but he even talks about the wicked people who are his enemies in the same way. In Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. You never have to teach a child how to lie. They, They already possess everything necessary to be liars. And uh, if God is giving you a child who lies poorly, rejoice. That's a good thing. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, 15, uh, common parenting ver- verse. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The foolishness that comes already present in children, it is incumbent on parents to remove it, to remove it from them. And God has given a tool for that very purpose called a rod. A rod. That is to remove folly from children. Um, So the children in the room, if your parents have applied the rod to your backside, you have cause to thank God. You should thank God because this is what they are trying to do is remove foolishness from you. Um, And if you can read in the room, children, you should read Proverbs and discover what it says about foolishness. Because what you will see from the first chapter is that it is deadly. Foolishness is not, oh, he's a kid. Um, Oh, isn't that cute? But painted biblically, foolishness always inevitably leads to death. And so when parents diligently apply the rod, they are rescuing their children, seeking to rescue their children from death. Proverbs 29, 15 says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. Not only does it remove foolishness, but it's intended to instill wisdom in children. But a child left to himself 
brings shame to his mother. This is what Ryle is getting at when he says, train them in the way they should go, not in the way they would. Don't leave your child to himself, to herself. Um, This could, you know, in, in general application, this could range from allowing a child who all they can do is crawl, to crawl wherever they desire um, and not restraining them. Uh, it could manifest itself um, in, in our need to restrain children and, and uh, causing them or compelling them to speak at a lower volume, uh, not allowing them to pick out their own clothes, not allowing them to choose their own entertainment or their own diet, because then it would just be a perpetual snack time. You don't want to do that. Uh, but just in learning the value of restraint and in teaching our children the value of, of restraint. Ryle says in, in one point, the way he ends this section, he says self-will is almost the first thing that appears in a child's mind, and it must be your first step to resist it. Wherever you see self-will, a lack of submission appearing in, in your child, you should resist it. Um, there are ways that some children seek to control, right, maintain types of control, even at a young age in, in subtle forms. Um, if, if you lived in our home, you might see this manifest in a, uh, an unwillingness to eat, or rather, to be more specific, a willingness to eat, but as slowly as I can manage. Um, took us a little while to discern that in, in one of our kids, but uh, maintaining control over my eating, I might not be able to tell you, no, I'm not going to eat that, but if you're going to make me eat it, then it's going to take me an hour. Uh, and so then it's not, the issue hasn't been you won't eat it, but now you're resisting the authority or the command that you must eat it by eating it on your own time. And so that had to, to be, uh, the kid had to be persuaded not to do that. Um, this, this principle, uh, to really practice this, the parent, all, all parents have to understand that God has given parents two children for wisdom. God has given parents two children for wisdom. Children don't come with any wisdom inherent in them. And so God, in his kindness to children, has given them people who have experienced more life than them, who have more intelligence than them, more experience, even with unbelievers, this is the case. You just know more. You should be able to say, don't do that. That's dangerous. Parents have been given to children for wisdom. And so it's really a grace in the child's life if they have parents who are biblically wise. This is basically on every page of the Proverbs, especially in the first um, several chapters. One of the express reasons Solomon is writing according to Proverbs 1, verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance, or rather, sorry, verse 4 is what I'm looking for. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, young people. 
there's a specific stage of life that Solomon is writing for, and it, and it comes with young people because the assumption is young people are foolish. And so even from there, we see going forward, these, there are many commands specifically addressed to children, or in this case, uh, a specific child. Verse 8 of Proverbs 1, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and not only your father's instruction, but forsake not your mother's teaching. It's a joint effort. And then the first, you have it just in the structure of Proverbs, the purpose for, for which Proverbs is written, verses 1 to 6. Then you have the foundational principle of all wisdom that's given to follow in verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I don't think any of the Proverbs should be read outside of that context. The wisdom being offered is in light of the fear of God. But then interestingly enough, the first lesson given to Solomon's son as he's writing, the first parenting principle, he's going to teach him about friendships. I'm going to tell you what kinds of friends you should have, what kinds of friends you should desire, what kind of people you should involve yourself with. Uh, the, the first principles to be discussed in Proverbs as a matter of wisdom is parenting principles, teaching children what kinds of friends to select. Chapter 2 begins this, uh, similarly. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, etc., so there, there's parental instruction, and in Solomon's case, it's help, it helps that the parental instruction is the very same words that are coming from God himself as the words are inspired by God. Thus saith the Lord's son, do this. Um, parents who are training their children to obey God fall into a, a similar category. Chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Wise parental instruction can say the same. Chapter 4, hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. And then you have other references there that, that echo the same sentiment. God has given parents two children for training in wisdom. And so we should take it upon ourselves as if that's our role in life. Uh, not to let our children do what they would like, but we need to be discerning is what they're desiring, what they should actually be doing, um, and then even being proactive in instilling wisdom in children. Ryle says this Our hearts are like the earth on which we tread. Let it alone, and it is sure to bear weeds. If then you would deal wisely with your child, you must not leave him to the guidance of his own will. Think for him, judge for him, act for him, just as you would for one weak and blind, but for pity's sake. Give him not up to his own wayward tastes and inclinations. It must not be his likings and wishes that are consulted. He knows not yet what is good for his mind and soul any more than what is good for his body. You do not let him decide what he shall eat and what he shall drink and how he shall be clothed. 
or at least you shouldn't, be consistent and deal with his mind in the like manner. Train him in the way that is scriptural and right and not in the way that he fancies. And that is a constant, constant uh, fight. To, it's, it's like a car that's out of alignment. You have to hold it in alignment, never having, uh, letting go of the steering wheel for a moment, right? Unless you head into oncoming traffic. Parenting is similar. Principle two, train up your child with all tenderness, affection, and patience. With all tenderness, affection, and patience. Ryle says, I do not mean that you are to spoil him, but I do mean that you should let him see that you love him. Love should be the silver thread that runs through all your conduct. Kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, patience, forbearance, sympathy, a willingness to enter into childish troubles, a readiness to take part in childish joys. These are the cords by which a child may be led most easily. These are the clues you must follow if you would find the way to his heart. So the first principle could sound like, oh man, you're just going to have a strict home and your kids are going to grow up to hate being strict and then they're going to leave the home and want to experience the freedom they didn't give having your home. Uh, that's not the case. But a parent who is training diligently, who knows that he's been given to the child for wisdom and is in a constant uh, practice of correcting and has high standards at home, that is not devoid of the things that we just read. Love, tenderness, affection, fun. Uh, I love that Ryle says, a readiness to take part in childish joys. Right? Your kid is enjoying something that is probably not a big deal, but to them it is. Dad, I made you this picture. Another one, right? Uh, and so now it's becoming a stack of bookmarks, uh, these pictures. Um, those are, that's, that's good things. Those are good things to, to play with our children and, and the things that they enjoy. I think that two passages that sort of highlight this principle, Ephesians 6, 4, Colossians 3, 21, uh, talks about fathers not provoking children to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the training and discipline that the Lord approves doesn't lend itself to provoking children. The world would tell us otherwise, right? Your children are going to be provoked and uh, just waiting to rebel if you train them in the way that the Lord requires. That's too strict. You should give them more freedom. Um, this verse actually says that's not the case. Christ-like parenting only promotes love and unity between parents and children, right? Just like uh, there's nothing, for example, in the gospel message that should repel people from it. There's nothing unbecoming about the gospel message or even Christ's laws. My commands are not burdensome, the scriptures say, about, about what Jesus requires. They're not burdensome. When God's standards are consistently, humbly uh, applied, lovingly applied, there's nothing in them that promotes rebellion. Uh, should, when children rebel against 
what God requires, even the loving application of what God requires, that doesn't indicate a, a problem in the standard, but only in the sinner. Just like sinners hate the gospel, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the gospel message. There's only everything in the gospel to endear and draw sinners into a loving, familial relationship uh, and a relationship to God by adoption. And so the, the standards aren't the problem. Um, Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Um, Jerry Ragg has helpfully articulated this in a number of venues that I've been able to hear, uh, that hypocrisy in parents will exasperate children, right? Um, when a parent, or when a child rather, sees the love that exists from dad to the members of his small group or between dad and church leadership or dad and other Christians in the church, but he never talks to me that way, right? It's not like that at home. People think mom and dad are great Christians on Sunday. It's not anything like that at home. That will exasperate children. That will embitter children not only toward the parents but toward the church toward church leadership. Uh, I hate going to small group because then I get to see, again, my parents live out hypocrisy before other people and children have to live with that. This is, uh, again, where shepherding our own heart for the sake of God's glory has practical, great practical ramifications. The parent who is being godly in the quietness of his own heart, her own heart, uh, who is practicing diligently discipline one and pursuing the Lord there, who then steps into the home and practices the same godliness, the same conviction that's been happening in their own heart, publicly at home or privately at home. Uh, then they step into D3, the ministry, and see life lived out among the body. The child who's watching that happen can say, hey, my dad's not perfect in any of these areas of life, not in his own heart, in his care there, and their care for us in the home and what I see lived out at home is not perfect. They're not even perfect in the church, but I see them pursuing faithfulness and changing I just had a conversation with a, a parent recently and, and encouraged them that the, the ways you're faltering, perhaps at home now, if you diligently pursue the Lord and change biblically, you don't need to worry about the snapshot that your child's getting perhaps this month or even this year. If you keep training them over the life of their time in your home, They'll see you change. They'll get to see you sanctified. Uh, Lord willing, their testimony is who my parent was when I was five, six, seven, eight. That used to be the case. And I've seen my, my dad grow in patience. I've seen my mom grow in, in, her, uh, in her patience, right? So there's a, there's a long view, a uh, long approach to parenting that's helpful in those things. Principle four, uh, train with this thought continually before your eyes 
that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. So appreciate this. Ryle says, soul love is the soul of all love. To pet and pamper and indulge your child as if this world was all he had to look to and this life the only season for happiness, to do, to do this is not true love but cruelty. It is treating him like some beast of the earth which has but one world to look to and nothing after death. It is hiding from him that grand truth which he ought to be made to learn from his very infancy, that the chief end of his life is the salvation of his soul. A true Christian must be no slave to fashion if he would train his child for heaven. He must not be contented to do things merely because they are the custom of the world, to teach them and instruct them in certain ways merely because it is usual, to allow them to read books and question, of questionable sort merely because everybody else reads them, to let them form habits of the day. And that could apply in the church too, not just habits of the world, right? Just because we might look around and see everybody in Grace Bible Church doing it doesn't make it the best thing for your home necessarily. Doesn't mean you get to kick back and not discern the wisdom of whatever practice you see happening at Grace Bible Church. We don't get to take a break from discernment. He goes on and says, he must train with an eye to his children's souls. He must not be ashamed to hear his training called singular and strange. What if it is? The time is short. The fashion of this world passeth away. He that has trained his children for heaven rather than for earth, for God rather than man, he is the parent that will be called wise at last. Proverbs 28 One is a passage that comes to mind often in this regard. You don't have it in your outline, but the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. To parent from conviction, because you are convinced this is the best thing for our home, that parent has nothing to fear. Who, with Purity of heart, integrity of life, can, who walks not as a hypocrite, same at home as he is outside of the home. That's the idea of what is being described in this passage as righteous. That person will possess a humble and holy boldness. And it's the same for parents. If you are convinced that, you know what, I don't care who else practices that. It doesn't matter to me that that person has lots of friends or that this maybe family desires to have my child over in in these types of ways or wants to draw close to my child in these types of ways. The parent who is convinced that's not good for my child and is going to parent from a conviction of righteousness can courageously step forward in their parenting and doesn't have to fear if the entire world says you that's silly. That shouldn't be a standard. That shouldn't be a requirement in your parenting. At the end of the day, we, we will answer to God for our parenting. And with that primary thing in view, then we can parent with, with full courage and, and conviction that we're going to do what we believe are convinced that is in our child's best interest. And so it, we shouldn't fear, uh, as Ryle said, 
our teaching perhaps being called strange. If there isn't anything called strange by the world about your parenting, then you're probably doing it wrong. Right? God's standard is always hated by the world, and, and the same applies to parenting. The world has its own priorities for parents, uh, things like schooling and education. What, kind, what school is your kid in? Right? Um, athletic and or artistic abilities and or artistic abilities. That's prioritized by the world. Job opportunities, earning potential, prestige, fame, and notoriety. Uh, if you can get your kid famous on YouTube or, you know, through, through some other avenue, parents, uh, the world would esteem those things. And the point is Christian parents can't cave to the pressure from the world to value what the world values for our children. Uh, we have to be willing to be called strange, to be excluded from various activities uh, or various groups for the sake of training our children for godliness. There might come some um, times when we're ostracized for those things. Can't go to that party, can't hang out with that group, can't engage in that activity, um, can't play on that sports team. Maybe we can't even engage in that entire sport because it violates some biblical principle, right? That's possible, you you realize. (laughs) Um, The attire that is being required in that sport we can't submit to, and there, there's no way around it. We've tried. You just can't play in that sport or whatever it is, right? You can't participate in that play because, of the, uh, because it violates the convictions of our, of our family. That's possible. Uh, there was a time in fifth grade, sixth grade maybe, when uh, I was removed from an entire class uh, at school and put in a different class because the other class was reading a different book that didn't have the godliness portrayed in it as another class that I was in. Um, I didn't realize the wisdom of it then. It was a little embarrassing for me as a kid to have to go back to school and explain to all my friends, yeah, I can't read. I can't be in that class because y'all are reading that book and my parents actually think that's uh, not a good book for children to be reading. Um, But now I appreciate that. There was great wisdom in that. And so we should be willing to make those those sacrifices, endure whatever scorn might come. Uh, And then in in considering the soul of of children, uh, one implication is not to allow activities, whether that's sporting events, extracurricular activities, that will actually replace or crowd out time for spiritually beneficial activities. There are lots of things to do, right? Um, lots of sporting events, lots of extracurricular activities, etc., to be involved in. Uh, it's easy to sacrifice Sundays or small group or spiritually beneficial activities, student ministries, whatever it is, to say there's this other thing that we could do. It's wise not to, to sacrifice what should be prioritized, what's going to bring the most spiritual benefit and blessing to your child for something that's more practically perhaps expedient. And then finally, the last few minutes we have, train your child to a knowledge of the Bible. Train your child, child to a knowledge of the Bible. 
Rouse says, you cannot make your child love the Bible. I allow. None but the Holy Ghost can give us a heart to delight in the word. But you can make your children acquainted with the Bible and be sure they cannot be acquainted with that blessed book too soon or too well. A thorough knowledge of the Bible is the foundation of all clear views of religion. He that is well grounded in it will not generally be found a waverer and carried about by every wind of new doctrine. Any system of training which does not make a knowledge of Scripture the first thing is unsafe and unsound. Some are to be found who honor a catechism more than the Bible or fill the minds of their children with miserable little storybooks instead of the scripture of truth. But if you love your children, let the simple Bible be everything in the training of their souls and let all other books go down and take the second place. Care not, care not so much for their being mighty in the catechism as for their being mighty in the scriptures. This is the training, believe me, that will honor God. Not sure that catechisms and creeds and confessions are as popular at Grace Bible as maybe other churches who are confessional, right? We aren't, we aren't confessional. Uh, but this can still be a, a pitfall in parenting is to say, I mean, we've got a book table, right, right outside, um, a wealth of, of children resources that is growing. And we love that. We would not discourage parents from, I mean, we actually encourage, we did it this month, right? We're encouraging parents to pick up resources outside of Scripture that will be a blessing and benefit to their, themselves the parent, as parents and their children. We've, we've done that. But those things aren't replacements for Scripture. I would say if you're, if you're not having your children... Uh, in a regular habit of reading through Scripture, which they can understand, right? They can't understand it because we don't read it to them, perhaps. But to read small portions at a time for younger children and for older children, greater portions, to require and help our children memorize Scripture besides what's happening in Wellspring Kids or Next Generation Ministries, they can grasp those things. That's not beyond them because they're young. They can understand the Bible. And even though they don't understand everything that's being articulated, we don't either, by the way, right? When's the last time in your quiet time you say, man, sure glad I grasped everything I just read and all of the implications for my life. That doesn't happen for us. Uh, to start acquainting children with the Bible at a young age, that can't happen too soon. And so for parents who perhaps aren't in a regular habit of just reading through the Bible, set the other books aside until you're doing that, right? Let that be the priority. Catechisms are no replacement for Scripture. Just because your child may be able to answer several questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism does not mean they understand Scripture. And everything they memorized in that catechism might be biblically accurate. But just because I embrace what the Westminster divines articulate is true does not mean that I'm believing God. 
to believe some man's systematic articulation of truth or even a group of really godly, brilliant men's systematic articulation of truth does not mean that in believing them, I am believing God. Hearing their voice is not the same as hearing God's voice, even if they're articulating accurately what God has said. So to train children in Scripture, to know Scripture, to be acquainted with it as Scripture, to be able to recognize the difference between what God says and what other people say is simply you can't put a price tag on it. And even if they grow up and hate the Bible later, they will at least know what it says. And we're taught that's God's voice. I was really encouraged recently when uh, we were watching a show and one of the characters said something about listening to your heart. And our kids, uh, one of our kids stopped and said, that's wrong. You're not supposed to listen to your heart. Yes, it's working. Success. Right? It's a, a shining moment for us. Um, and only reading, reading Scripture regularly is going to make that possible, to help our kids discern, even as unbelievers, what God says from what's, what's not true. And so some questions to consider. Are you reading through the Bible with your children? Are they used to sitting still to hear from yeah. God's word? Um, if it's not hap- happening at home, you might get those reports from the NGM teacher. Yeah, had some trouble sitting still today. Right? That's practice at home. Practice should be happening at home so that uh, when it's required of them, when we're not around as parents, that's still happening. Do they know something about the nature of Scripture as God's Word? Do they know the difference between the Bible and other books? Do they know the Bible better than they know other books, other stories? How much Scripture are your children memorizing because you've been teaching them to memorize it? Helpful for us to memorize those things that they're memorizing it too. Some, some parental benefit in that as well. And so those are, are four principles that I, I hope are helpful. Um, to us that hopefully are not new to any of us, any of us but uh, could certainly sharpen, sharpen us as parents. I'm hanging around. If you have questions, uh, better you make a beeline for the Demarus or the Pagos, though, would be my suggestion. Um, thank you, everybody, for, for joining us. You're dismissed.